First off, well done, guys, getting here on Spring Forward Day. It does feel like an hour of our life got sucked away, doesn't it, overnight? Makes it a little bit, ah, we'll be okay. It's actually a little bit of a dense sermon this morning. So if you guys don't mind, I'm just going to like dive right in. And I'm going to start by telling a story about Jesus that appears in three of the Gospels. And that's the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the Gospel of Mark is the, is the book that we think was written down the earliest, and it actually contains the most details about this story. But if we use some components from all three of those Gospels, I think we can get a clearer picture of what's happening. And it's a really weird story. So I'm going to start it like this. A long time ago, in a Galilee far, far away... <laughs> I told Rachel, I said, if that bombs, I'll totally make fun of myself, but somebody had to try that. <laughs> a long time ago, in a Galilee far, far away, <laughs> Jesus and some of his buddies were hanging out on the shores of a sea called the Sea of Galilee, and they decided that they were going to take a boat across that sea to go over to the eastern side. Now, the Sea of Galilee is actually a little bit more like a lake than it is a sea, and it would take about two hours to sail across. And so those two hours of water, they separated more than just the land. They were actually kind of a boundary marker that marked the territory between where it was primarily Jewish people living on the western side and primarily Gentile people or non-Jewish people who were living on the eastern side. So Jesus and his friends were crossing from the primarily Jewish side over to the Gentile side. And we're told it was evening. And so Jesus and his friends, they're in a boat sailing across the lake and then this furious squall comes up and the waves started washing over the boat. And Jesus, we're told, was just taking a nap in the back of the boat. I think we all know people who can like sleep like the dead. And he's oblivious to this storm and his friends go and they wake him up and they say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? So Jesus gets up and he tells the waves and the wind to be still and the water calms down. And then when they get over to the other shore, Jesus gets out of the boat. So presumably this is late evening now. And you know that sort of post-storm calm feeling. We have a little bit of that today where it's just that like after rain feeling. In the evening, he's stepping out of the boat into some of the, the mud. And as Jesus steps down onto land, we're told that a naked wild man came just running down out of the hills at him from some nearby tombs. And we'll presume that those tombs were probably like caves up in the hills. Now, the three different gospel writers offer some details that are a little bit different about this man. So Luke tells us that this man had been naked for many years, living in these tombs outside of the village. Matthew describes the scene as having two wild men among the tombs who wouldn't let anyone pass. Mark tells us there's one man, like Luke does, but that he lived in those caves intermittently. So Mark writes this. So Mark tells us this man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained, hand and foot, and he tore those chains apart and he broke the irons on his feet, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. Now we notice here, Mark tells us that this man had often been chained, hand and foot, Right, that he was tearing these chains and that nobody could keep him bound. And so what seems to be happening is that when this wild man would have an episode and he would get naked and he would start to wander off outside the village, 
his community would go and they would forcibly try and stop him, which probably did some violence to the man. You know, they dragged him back and they tied him up and they tried to keep him from wandering off. And apparently they weren't very good at this. They weren't very good at keeping him from breaking free because I think that if you were really trying to keep a man chained down, you could probably figure out a way to do that. But they continue using items that can be broken or discarded or taken off and then the man wanders off only to eventually settle down again and come back to the village to have the whole cycle repeat. And so there's something about this scenario that seems to be serving another purpose. Right? That the violence that's being done against this naked man, against his will, is somehow being ritualized. Right? He gets naked, they drag him, they chain him, he escapes, he goes and wanders among the tombs like a dead person, harming himself with stones. I think that's a good detail to keep in mind that we'll come back to. Settles down, he comes back, he reintegrates into the village. Eventually, he gets naked again. They drag him and chain him. He escapes and wanders, hitting himself with stones, and so on and so forth. And so Jesus, we're told, he steps out of this boat and he comes on shore. And I've actually, I've been to the Sea of Galilee and much of the land around there is hilly. It kind of comes down into the sea. And so we're meant to see like this wild naked man is maybe up around in the hills and he sees Jesus from far off and he comes charging down wildly. It reminds me of like a Life of Brian sort of scene. And Jesus sees him coming from a ways off, barreling down the hills. And Jesus yells, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now, what exactly this means, I think is a little bit unclear. So in the story, the gospel writer Mark, right, he had just told us about how Jesus had calmed the storm, right? He had just done this miracle that I think is meant to show that Jesus is more powerful than nature. And I believe in miracles. I, mean, I think that could easily have been true. And so maybe this is Mark's way of saying that Jesus is also more powerful than spiritual forces, right? Maybe this is Mark's way of, of conveying that. When Jesus says, come out of this man, you impure spirit, I am Lord over you, that's how I was always taught to read it. And I still agree with that, but I actually understand this a little bit differently. So I'm going to step back a little bit and unpack that thought. So the word Satan in Hebrew, Satan, lowercase, is a word that simply means accuser or the one who accuses. So when I think of Satan as a power in our world, I think of it as an accusing force that works on many levels. Right? It's a force that tells us that we're not good enough, right? that we're not smart enough, we're not successful enough, we're not a good enough parent. It's a force of shame in that way. And I would call that voice in our heads that tells us that we're not good enough for ourselves and for others, ha-setan in Hebrew, the Satan, the accusing force. It's a force that also tells us that we're not acceptable to God, that we stand accused before God. It tells us we're not good enough for the grace of God to be accessible to us. I also call that Hasetan. And additionally, it can describe like a mob force that falsely accuses humans of crimes that they didn't commit. It's that intangible power that perpetuates false narratives that are being said about immigrants, people of color, LGBTQ plus people, even about the rich and the powerful. You know, rich people and celebrities endure all kinds of false gossip. And that, I would say, that force is also satanic, right? It's a falsely accusing force. So in the Christian imagination, Satan is the way we describe this accusing force no matter how that manifests. And when that force is personified in our texts, 
it's sometimes depicted as a person. And when it is, it's described as Satan with a capital S. Right, like when Satan tempted Jesus in the desert or when Satan and God are in conversation over Job in the Hebrew Bible. Sometimes when it's personified, it's personified as multiple beings. Right, it's imagined a little bit more as like a chaotic cloud of evil. And when it is, it's talked about in terms of like being many inferior beings or demons. You might say that's like what a demonic force is in the Christian imagination or a demonic horde. Right, so being infused with demons is like being infused with the spirits of accusation. Like you're taking on the accusing voices of the world that are in and around us. Like that's how I would describe demon possession. So when Jesus sees this wild, naked man running down the hill toward him, he says, come out of this man, you impure spirit. It's like, come out, whatever force is telling you lies about who you are, be gone. And then the wild man yells at Jesus. He says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? One, he recognized him, that's an interesting tidbit. But he says, in God's name, I beg you, don't torture me. Right, so presumably this man is begging Jesus, don't torture me like my village people do. Right, they name my demons, they accuse me of all kinds of things, and then they torture me for them. You're naming my demons, you're calling them out, please don't treat me the way my community treats me. I beg you, don't torture me. And Jesus responds to that in a lovely way. He says, what's your name? Right? That's a way of humanizing him and not just simply seeing him as the naked wild demon man, which I thought would be a great album name if anybody's ever, <laughs> naked wild demon man. Yeah, you're onto that, Lyle's on it. And the man, when asked his name, he replies, Legion. Sounds like kind of a cool name, actually, but legion, we're told, because many demons had gone into him, right? that he had been so infested with the accusing voices of his community that he'd actually taken on that identity to the point of using those voices as his own name. Right? He's no longer Fred or George or Jamal or Jeremiah. He's now legion. So he's taking on his shame as an identity, now, legion is an interesting way for him to describe his demons. A legion is what a group of Roman soldiers was called, and Roman troops occupied that area at the time. So the man is describing his demons like being a hostile, occupying army in his psyche. All right, so the Gospel of Mark, he writes this, he says, there was a large herd of pigs that was feeding on a nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them, and Jesus gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out, and they went into the pigs. And the herd, which was about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake, and they were drowned. Now, let's pause a minute here and think about what that would look like. I had never just sat and meditated on this scripture until this week, and it's kind of horrifying. If you can imagine a movie, even, where there's a herd of 2,000 pigs rushing down a cliff and just jumping off into a, a sea. I'm like, is that like 5,000 teenagers doing a can opener in the deep end? Like, can you imagine what that would have looked like? Can you imagine what that would sound like? And can you imagine what the aftermath of something like that would be if all the pigs drowned, like it said? Like, that's a wretched picture. I was describing it to Rachel, and she's just like, stop, stop. 
Like, I love animals. I can't stand to see them hurt. And so I was like, what is wrong with you, Jesus? We'll come back to that, because I had to deal with that. But Mark goes on. He wraps up the story like this. He says, when those who had seen the pigs, who were tending the pigs, saw what had happened, they ran off and they reported it to the other people in the countryside. And of course, more people came out to look and see what happened. And so when they came to Jesus, they found this man who had had demons, that the demons were gone, and the man was dressed and sitting at Jesus's feet, and he was in his right mind, and it said they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, and then all of the people of the region of the Gerasenes, they asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got in the boat and he left. And then we're told that this naked wild demon man had gone to Jesus and had begged for, to come with him. And Jesus just sent him away and he said, go home and tell how much God has done for you. And so the man went away and he told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Right, so that's a weird story. Like I used to just sort of read through it and be like, okay, Jesus cured a, you know, somebody. That's a weird story. So for our Lenten sermon series here, we're, we're talking about how to make sense of what happened to Jesus on the cross and what happened in the resurrection. And the best sense that I have been able to make of it is through the lens of something called scapegoat theory. Now, some of you have heard Ken and I teach on scapegoat theory. Some of you guys have been reading Soulless Jesus. But there's a lot of you who haven't, who are newer and maybe haven't heard us talk about it. And I think this story is one of the best illustrations about how Jesus understood the scapegoating dynamics. So I would say, especially if you haven't heard about scapegoat theory, this is important. I'm going to do it in like a nutshell here. And it's dense. And I know this is a dense sermon, so if you need to kind of like move around and wake up, <laughs> take a deep breath, it'll only take like four minutes, and then I'm going to apply it to this story. And I don't know if it'll be like it was for me, but I was like, oh... So scapegoat theory is credited to a man named René Girard, who was a professor who finished his career at Stanford. And Girard said that all violence begins with mimetic desire. And mimetic simply means imitative. So what Girard observed that, using, using um, discoveries from various scientific fields, that other animals and other mammals, especially our fellow primates, we learn from each other by imitation, right? So the classic example I give is if I raise my arm, even if you guys are not raising your arm, if you're watching me, your brains are acting like you're raising your arm. And we've got these overriding mechanisms that keep us from going around and imitating each other all day. But what that helps us do is it helps us build neuro connections, especially when we're babies, like little Anderson over there. He learns to smile by watching his parents smile, and he'll learn to walk by watching us walk. But unlike other species, we humans, we have a more highly developed capacity for imitation. Not only do we have the ability to imitate each other's different gestures and actions, but we can also imitate other people's internal states. And we're especially adept at in, um, imitating the desires of others. So this is why like, going to a big concert feels really good. Because what you're doing is you're mirroring the excitement and the joy of the people who are around you. And that's magnifying your own sense of excitement and joy. And it's also why being around somebody who's like, stressed all the time makes you feel exhausted and stressed. It's because you're mirroring their internal state. And Girard then says that when people start desiring the same things and that everybody can't have the thing, like power, 
the affection of a certain person. If you both can't have the thing, or think you both can't have the thing, that's when rivalries begin. And uncontrolled rivalries inevitably lead to some form of harm being done to another. Right? So if we don't think we can share power or resources or whatever, we fight each other for it. And he says that humans discovered a mechanism over time that prevents full-scale rivalrous violence from breaking out in groups. Right? So to save our communities from self-implosion, group members can identify a scapegoat on which they can project all of their collective anxiety and envy and rivalry. Right? So scapegoats are used to control the amount of violence that takes place in groups. Right? If we can channel all of our violent energy onto one person or onto a minority of people, then we can prevent violence from being widespread. And Gerard says the scapegoat can be an individual, it can be a small group of people who within the larger group are singled out for being different, and that that difference can be anything. It can be sexual orientation, it can be skin color, it can be the amount of money you have whether it's a lot more or a lot less than others. And then once a scapegoat is identified, the group succumbs to a form of mob mentality where we start to like imitate each other's desires and accusations and we accuse the scapegoat of a taboo crime to dehumanize them. And Gerard says this is largely unconsciously done. It's just what we do as humans. And the members of a group who then turn on a scapegoat don't view the victim as innocent. Instead, they view the victim, the individual, or the group as guilty of the crimes of which they are accused. It's like the, the most easy, readily example that comes to my mind are, are undocumented immigrants in our country right now. Right? That even though statistics, statistics have shown time and again that immigrants are no more prone to violence than the average American, they are no more prone to criminality, that we can accuse immigrants of bringing, what, taboo crimes? Rape, terrorism, drugs, whatever it is, and collectively focus those false accusations and violence onto them, and then we can justify doing inhumane things. And Gerard tells us that this projection of sin and anxiety onto the scapegoat, it has the effect of unifying the group against the scapegoat and relieving the group's anxiety about its own sins. It actually works. It even unifies people who would normally defend the scapegoat. And then once that scapegoat is identified, we can justify doing all of these things, bullying, exiling, isolating, firing, killing. And Gerard says the system works so well for achieving group peace and harmony that oppressing and beating up or getting rid of a scapegoat, it does bring temporary calm and unity to an anxious group. And then he says once a, a group uses a scapegoat to relieve this collective unease, they will eventually have to find another because scapegoating doesn't address the roots of the underlying rivalries. Or else you have to continually beat up on the same person or the same group. And Gerard identified this pervasive cycle of violence in human literature and history and myth. And then he noticed that the Bible does something different. He actually converted to Christianity in his 40s after studying this. He says that the Bible unmasks this system of violence and offers ways to counter it and break it. And he says that we do this by being able to identify when scapegoating is taking place, that we can name it, that we can humanize the scapegoat, and then we can advocate for them. And so as we go through this sermon series, we're gonna be talking a lot more about this and how the cross and the resurrection are important parts of revealing this process. But with this, with this little nutshell scapegoating framework in mind, let's return to our naked wild man. Because I think our wild man is the scapegoat in his community. 
Right, Anderson? I got an amen. (laughs) The community ritually tortures and chains him to keep widespread violence at bay. Right, so it's all against one instead of all against all. And we don't know what the underlying village rivalry is about. We don't know what it is that they accuse this man of causing. But what we do see is that the villagers are taking a vulnerable man, a man who's prone to take off his clothes and go wandering away, so he's probably dealing with different mental health issues. They drag him back to town and they justify doing violence to him by forcibly holding him down and chaining him over and over again, and he calls it torment. Right? So they're clearly accusing him of something because he's mirroring their internal states and he's taking on their accusations as his identity, legion. But then what we see Jesus do is he looks through him and he sees through legion and he knows that there's a man inside there who is not his shame. So Gerard says the classic scapegoating scenario in the ancient world took place by stoning. That a group would surround the scapegoat and they would accuse them of something and then the ringleader would pick up the first stone. That's actually where the term ringleader comes from. It was the person who would pick up the first stone to start the stoning. And stoning as a form of death is actually meant to mask who the actual killer is. Because if you have several people surrounding, then nobody knows who actually makes the final blow. Legion has even taken on so much of the group's shame as his own identity that on some level, I think he actually feels like he deserves to be scapegoated and harmed. Because as he wanders among the tombs, we're told that he repeatedly hits himself and cuts himself with stones. And I think this is a depiction of how vulnerable groups can internalize false narratives about themselves, believing that they deserve the mistreatment. So we call internalized racism, internalized homophobia. I'm going to go a little off notes here. I actually had something specific written down, but I, I've been feeling, um, I don't know, some of you have been reading The Cross and the Lynching Tree. We're reading that for Lent together. I don't know how many of you have started it. Um, a few of you probably have. So one of the things that James, James Cone talks about is he's got a critique, particularly of white liberal pastors in the mid-last century, and he says, you know, it's just for as progressive as they could be, they still couldn't make the immediate link between what was happening in our culture, which was the literal lynching of black people and the cross. And I think that here we would have James Cone as well as other um, black theologians like Kelly Douglas Brown, who would say, you know, we have to make the obvious links between scapegoating and not be afraid to name them. And there's many of them in our culture. You know, I think, that Kelly, um, Kelly Douglas Brown especially would invite us to see that the ritual killing of unarmed black men is part of the scapegoating ritual. And even though we can say who actually made the final blow, we've kind of tacitly agreed as a culture that those people are innocent. And we kind of know the drill. It happens, people cry out on behalf of the scapegoat, and still whatever happens most often, the person who killed the man who's just, you know, lifting up his cell phone or whatever, gets off. And there's some sense of like, well, maybe he deserved it. Like in Ferguson, like, well, the, the, the guy was stealing something. 
You know, and there's this sort of ritualized violence that we have in our culture. It was lynching 50 years ago. I have to admit, like, I was, I was researching this parable um, the week, it was two weeks ago when the United Methodists were having their big general conference vote on LGBTQ inclusion, and they voted to exclude by a narrow margin, but 53% voted to exclude. And as I was watching it, I, you could watch it online on live stream, there was this really eerie scene where they asked all of the queer clergy and members to get into the center of the arena and they all surrounded them. And they started to sing a song that said, we love you, we'll never hurt you with the words of our mouths. Those were literally the words of the song. Meanwhile, they were actually doing violence to them and excluding them. And I watched, I mean, that was probably the part that was the most kind of traumatizing. I was like, what is in the human psyche? where we take vulnerable people and surround them and be like, we're not hurting you, you're fine. Because nobody wants to take responsibility or own what we're doing. Nobody has to actually say, I'm part of this crowd, I am harming someone. It disperses the responsibility. That's what stoning does as well. The other classic scapegoating story, aside from stoning, is driving a scapegoat off of a cliff. Or a variance might be a volcano. And it's for the same reasons. Nobody has to touch the scapegoat to kill them. Nobody has to like, take on their impurities. And then no one person can be accused of being the killer. And so the group as a whole does the excluding or the killing, but nobody owns it because the responsibility is spread out. The whole group drives people over the edge. And I think Jesus understands these dynamics of surrounding and of stoning and of driving people off of cliffs, right? He, he stopped a group from stoning a woman in John 7. And a few times in the Gospels, you'll notice that people listening to him stopped and picked up stones as if to stone him. And when Jesus first starts his ministry in Nazareth, a group surrounds him and brings him up a hill under the top of a cliff. I've actually stood on that cliff outside Nazareth. And they try to drive him over the edge. And he's able to walk away from that attempt. Right, so when this story tells us that Jesus was rebuking the man's demons, that they went and they occupied pigs instead of him, and then they went and jumped off of a cliff... He's enacting a scapegoat scenario here. It's a classic scapegoating story. But rather than the human, the human being, the vulnerable one being killed, who's driven over the cliff? The mob is. The demonic mob is symbolically driven over that cliff. Right? Jesus gets rid of the mob, not the scapegoat. And the mob is depicted as swine, which are impure animals in the Jewish tradition, right? So he's saying the mob is impure, not the scapegoat. The mob is the problem. And so in destroying those accusing voices, Jesus is symbolically putting an end to the scapegoating mob. And notice he doesn't put humans over the cliff. He's taking those voices. He's externalized those voices as a force of evil and he's calling them out for what they are and he's describing a dynamic that needs to die. Now, I don't think that Jesus actually killed 2,000 pigs in a literal sense. You might, and that's okay. But I do think Jesus is a mystic who meditated a lot on nature and on human nature, and I think he came up with ways to convey truths about humanity and through the divine, through stories involving nature like this one. Or it might even be a mixture of both something that happened and then him using something else to try and be more clear this is what I think one of the, the story is part of. And so Jesus is describing the scapegoating scenario and he's declaring the scapegoat innocent and the mob guilty. 
And it's interesting to me how in the story, the townspeople seem more concerned about their demons disappearing than about losing their 2,000 pigs. And I think Jesus understands that we don't want those accusing voices called out because uniting against someone gives us a sense of unity and peace, as long as we're not that person, right? So taking those voices away, driving them off of a cliff can actually cause disunity in the group. Jesus has gotten rid of the accusations and we're told twice they feel scared. And they want Jesus to get back on his boat and go and take his business elsewhere. And I think perhaps they're scared of their own violence now that their scapegoat has been revealed for what it is. And I think their fear might not be misplaced. And at the end of the story, Jesus then sends the scapegoated man home to his community, which I think is an indicator that the story is really more about community healing and restoration than it is about containing a wild man. It's about how the vulnerable need to be protected and advocated for by those who have the power to stand up for them. And that if we have, if we follow Jesus, we're told that we are filled with the spirit of Jesus operating inside of us. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is the paraclete, the advocate. We go from operating in the spirit of the accuser to the spirit of the advocate. And Jesus had the power to stand up to the mob and to unmask it. And we also are imparted that power. And when we do that, it's good news for the oppressed and for the vulnerable. And we're told that this wild naked man went and he told all the people in his town what God had done for him. One of the versions says he went to the whole Decapolis, which was like 10 major cities around the area, which is also interesting because if that man um, was actually a, a person, then that would make him arguably the first evangelist to the Gentiles, him or the Samaritan woman. And I think this whole scenario just hints at God's good news for the persecuted being available to everyone. And I was thinking about on the way to, to church this morning, and I was thinking, you know, you can teach this from two different directions. You know, if I were teaching in a Methodist church this morning, I'd be talking about, like, let's think about what kind of accusing narratives that we have. And let's focus on the tensions that are within our own group. But that's not who this group is. And I think what this story has for us, most of us can identify a little bit more with that wild naked man. that we've either been a scapegoat or we've stood as an ally with the scapegoat, so we bear the same marks of exclusion and of harm. And I think what this is telling us here is that Jesus is saying he's on the side of the oppressed. And Jesus would like to tell you, especially if you've been a scapegoat or if you've had these accusing narratives placed on you that you feel like you sometimes deserve the harm, that Jesus is calling that out and he wants to say that impure spirit needs to be gone. I want to restore you within your community. That there's no reason for the lashing. That's not, who, that's not who Jesus is. And I just want to wrap up by noting, I think, that this story indicates that humans have an incredible capacity to carry shame. Right? Isn't it interesting that when Jesus tells those accusing voices to get out of that man, once he released him from that and they went into the pigs, the pigs kind of went into like a suicidal frenzy. Right? One man, 2,000 pigs, and it drove the pigs absolutely nuts. So perhaps the story is revealing just like what a heavy load that shame is for humans and why Jesus is so concerned to help us be rid of those accusing voices. 
and to know who we are in the eyes of a loving God and in the eyes of a community that's supposed to be God's loving community on the earth. So with that, I'm going to go into a time of, of meditation. We often take two or three minutes of either silence or guided meditation. We're going to do a little guided meditation this morning. And so to start, and as you're calming your breath and getting relaxed, I just want you to start to imagine that you're taking a walk with Jesus or with God, however you understand God. And you can just start by imagining the, the place where you're at and the smells and the sounds. Just locate yourself somewhere that feels safe with a God who is love. As you're walking along, you hear Jesus, God, as you understand God, turn to you. I just ask you, what stories do you tell yourself about who you are? And which one of those might be lies? I want to spend a little more time with this one, with a little more space for silence. You hear God ask you or tell you, who does Jesus say you are? Like, what do you hear God, as you understand, saying to you about who you are? Jesus, we know from the scripture that your spirit is described as an advocate and as the comforter. And I would ask that in those spaces where we have believed lies about who we are, 
or where we experience that crushing weight of shame from our communities, that you would help us to become free from those and that your spirit would be a comforter to us and an advocate within our own prayer lives and within our communities, that you would go to battle on our behalf and stand up and declare us innocent. And we ask that your spirit would be with us and infusing us as we go into this coming week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.